Welcome back to the Minute Women podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. And this week, Minute Women is once again coming to you from isolation. Yeah, so I'm in Lunenburg and Grace is in Cape Breton. Yeah, uh, but we're we both might we, back with our yeah, families now. <laughs> we're both separated, but we might sound a little bit better. Last week, uh, we did the recording via phone, but now we're actually high tech. We're here in the future with technology and uh we're recording this (laughs) on separate computers on our own i've got a really nice setup with a microphone attached to a water bottle and we've got iphones hooked up so we can hear each other but uh hopefully it all works out uh because we love you guys and we love being able to bring you uh a new podcast every week and if this is how we have to do it this is how we'll do it because we uh we just love you guys yeah, we definitely want to keep the ball rolling and hopefully bring some levity and fun <laughs> to people during this kind of scary time. I will say that the tech side is not my strong suit and gave me a stress dream last night that I like did this whole <laughs> recording and didn't save it. So, you know, we're we're doing our best though. We're going to like we're going to yeah. roll with the punches. We are not, like we've said before, this is not a math podcast. This is not a technical computer science podcast either. And uh, we're doing our very best here with with the means that we have. So I hope it works. I hope this sounds clear and like we're in the same room looking at each other, Uh, even though we are miles apart. Miles apart. Kilometers apart. apart. We wish we were in the same yeah. room looking at Kilometers each other. apart Always. because we're Canadian and we're, we use metric mm. because who doesn't? Just the states. Yeah. I mean, ugh, that's that's the real plague. That's the whole actual problem is people using the imperial system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> do you want to tell yes. everybody what we're talking about today? I do because this is one of... My favorite Heritage Minutes. It's one that when we started this podcast, I was like, we're going to do this one early. And I, because it's just so good. The Heritage Minute itself is just so good. Do you want to guess what it is? Or do you want me to just like tell you? I just want you to tell me. We are doing Sam Steele. Whoa. Do you remember that one? I love this episode. Okay. So... (laughs) (laughs) This is a classic Heritage Minute. This is classic. Funny. It is just just with everything going on in the news right now. I think that this is a lighthearted approach of the difference between the Canadian and the American border. <laughs> um. <laughs> Which, yeah, because like, obviously, as always, if you've never heard of this Heritage Minute, if you've never seen it, we will leave the link Go to watch it, it in the description of the episode. Go watch watch it like usually we're like you don't have to go watch the episode if you don't want to you can just listen to us talk about it go watch this one because it is pure comedy gold it's like everything that a canadian stereotypes about themselves is just embodied it's it's a so sam Steele is a mountie he's a royal canadian mounted police during his time i should say it was the northwest mounted police yeah and he but they still wore the red jackets 
They still wore the yeah. hats. They still rode the horses. It's all very much what you think, what comes to mind when I say like RCMP on their like parade days or festival days. Um, yeah. And like Sam Steele is the stuff. prototypical Mountie. Like he's got oh, this yeah. huge mustache. He is like all <laughs> brawn. His last name is Steele. Like yeah. everything's perfect. <laughs> And it's just him deadpan talking to an American who is attempting to cross the border and reach the Yukon to partake in the Yukon gold rush. And he's like got Mm -hmm. gambling stuff and he's like bringing stuff that he's not supposed to bring like a gun. And it's essentially Sam Steele confronting him saying, you can't bring these things into the country. And then the pivotal moment of the conflict is when the American stands up, points his gun at him and says, you can't do this to me. I'm an American. Like, like literally, literally just hops up, like (laughs) whips out this gun and you can't do that. I'm an American. And it's... You can't do this Steel, to me. I'm an American. Sam, Sam Steele Steel calmly, calmly cold. escorts him out of the country. <laughs> yeah. Very Just relaxed. Does not very react. Very casual. Yeah. Very casual. And then, you yeah, know, it's, it's... You know that if Sam Steele was alive today, he'd have, like, a tattoo of a maple leaf on his left ass cheek. Like... He loves Canada. (laughs) He's that Canadian. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we're going to go into kind of his whole life, his whole career with the Northwest Mounted Police. I'm excited. Yeah. I will say I went into this one really expecting to not like him. Really? Because, yeah, because I mean, we'll get into like his whole history and stuff, but the Northwest Mounted Police and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police are a very controversial organization. I think they're very yes. much kind of epitomized as heroes and they're very iconically Canadian, but for certain yes. demographics of the Canadian population, they're an extremely oppressive organization. And so despite how much I love this heritage minute, I went in expecting like, oh God, this dude's just going to be really racist. He's going right, to be like... Right. So I was like kind of stealing myself, ha ha ha, quote unquote, stealing myself to not love <laughs> Sam Steele. But as we'll go through, I think you'll probably agree with me that his his past is kind of gray. You can't really categorize him as a bad guy or a good guy. So okay, um, interesting. Yeah. All right. So you're ready to learn about our hero. I am ready. Awesome. Okay. So. Samuel Benfield Steele was born on January 5th, 1849 in Mendote Township, Upper Canada. He was the son of a former naval officer and MLA, and he was the first child of his father's second marriage to a woman named Anne McKeon MacDonald. But as is so often the case with uh, Minute Women podcast, both of his parents die very early on in his life. Mm, death. <laughs> and so he is orphaned by age nine. And it's at this point that he left to live with his older half-brother, John Steele, in Aurelia, Canada West. So oh, he's, okay. he's left Upper Canada, and he's, he's going out west to live with his half-brother. From an early age, Sam wanted to be a soldier. So he joined the militia battalion in his early teens, and this was during the tumultuous period of the Finian Raids of 1866. Have you ever heard of the Finian Raids before? Never. What is that? 
So the Finian Brotherhood was a group of Irish nationalists. They were like a secret society in the United States. And they had this plan that they could win Irish independence by invading Canada and then exchanging it with Great Britain. And in return, they, like Great Britain would make Ireland an independent country. See... Mm, that sounds weak <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't sound like that's gonna work the video it's it's so bizarre but it's one of the first severe like it happens right at the time of confederation so it's one of the first international crises canada has to deal with but it's these like irish nationalists invading canada <laughs> But this was Sam's introduction to military life, and it was the career path that he would wind up following for the rest of his life. So in May of 1870, he joins the 1st Ontario Battalion of Rifles at Barrie. While they wanted to promote him, Steele chose the rank of private, which he later reflected on saying... As far as experience went, I was better off without chevrons and learned how to appreciate the trials of other men to an extent that I would not have ever been able to do had I been promoted. So he felt partially that he didn't deserve the promotion, but also that he wouldn't be able to effectively lead men if he had not been in their situation. Okay. So okay. he wants to be a private so he can kind of appreciate what it's like to be a private. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Which is, which is cool. I think that's a good mentality to have when you're going into a position of power. Yeah, definitely. Um, so his battalion was sent from Lakehead to Red River to quiet the Métis resistance that was going on. So the Red River resistance or the Red River rebellion uh, was an uprising in the Red River colony that was sparked by the transfer of the vast territory of Rupert's land to the D new Dominion of Canada. So all of the lands that were really once owned by the Hudson's Bay Company get sold to Canada. And the colony was full of farmers and hunters, and many of them were Métis people. And they feared that their culture and their land rights were not going to be observed under Canadian control. So the Métis mounted a resistance and declared a provisional government to negotiate terms for entering Confederation. And this uprising is ultimately leads to the creation of the province of Manitoba. And it's how Louis Riel kind of emerges as a Métis leader. So he's one of the leaders of the Red River Rebellion. Okay. While the Métis achieved their goal of having a distinct province, they soon found themselves so disadvantaged in Manitoba that many of them started moving farther west. And the strenuous overland journey from Lakehead to Red River is what kind of first demonstrates what makes Sam Steele so exceptional. Uh, one of the things that he's really known for is this exceptional strength and endurance. So throughout his career, whenever they talk about Sam Steele, they're like, oh, he could do the work of like two men. So and he this was is a when he really boy. starts to first emerge. Oh, yeah. He's like a big, strong guy. Unfortunately for Steele, to, to his disappointment, he arrives in Red River after the Métis have surrendered. So the resistance is already over by the time he gets there. And the following year, he joined the permanent force artillery. 
which was Canada's first regular army unit. So Canada doesn't really have a standing army at this time, but he's there from like the very beginning of a kind of the, the origins of a standing army. Right, right. Okay. So Steele had long been fascinated by Western Canada and the frontier, and he devoured the works of an author named James Fenimore Cooper uh, when he was really, really young. And so Cooper writes a lot of novels about like frontier life and the adventures of young men going into Western Canada and the Western United States. So he wants to be out West, essentially, but... He's shortly after he arrives in Red River, he gets reassigned to Fort Henry in Kingston, Ontario. And so for the next few years, he's an instructor at the artillery school. So he hasn't got his opportunity yet to move out west. So in the summer of 1873, he heard that the government intended to create a mounted police force in the Northwest Territories. So we have arrived at our red coats. We are here. Um, We are here. He immediately applied to his commander, Lieutenant Colonel George Arthur French, for permission to join, and he received it, not surprisingly, since French probably knew that he was going to command the new force. So his current commander, French, is also moving into the Northwest Mounted Police, and he's going to command... Does he like this guy? Like, are they pals? Yeah, so he... Yeah, like... Like, French is like, oh, great, Sam wants to join the Northwest Mounted Police as well? Awesome, of course I want him working for me. So he gives him, like, leave to go join the the Mounties instantly. On the 23rd of May, 1873, the Canadian Parliament passed an act to establish, quote, a mounted police force for the Northwest Territory. Formerly known as Rupert's Land, so this is the lands that had been purchased by the Canadian government from the Hudson's Bay Company, these lands all became incorporated into Canada as the Northwest Territories, which traditionally, so today Northwest Territory still exists, but during this time it would have been all of Alberta, all of Saskatchewan, virtually all of what is today Manitoba, and Northwest Territory, Yukon, and Nunavut. So it's just this huge swath of land that's really underpopulated, and they don't have a great control over the region. So that's why they're creating this kind of paramilitary group to enforce Canadian law. In Ottawa, Prime Minister John A. Macdonald wanted to send out... John, we know that guy. (laughs) So he's also responsible for creating the Mounties. Um, Wow, look at him. I know. So he's, he's sending the Mounties in to secure Canadian sovereignty in the West and also prepare these lands for the eventual settlement of white settlers. The Northwest Mounted Police sought to bring British law and order to the West, and they're especially concerned with the whiskey trade. So McDonald had been receiving reports of the devastating effect of the whiskey trade on several First Nations groups. Lieutenant William F. Butler, a British Army officer, was sent Uh to investigate the conditions on the frontier, and he reported back, quote, The region of Saskatchewan is without law, order, or security for life or property. Robbery and murder for years have gone unpunished. Indian massacres are unchecked, even in close vicinity to Hudson's Bay Company posts, and all civil and legal institutions are entirely unknown. 
So <laughs> the whiskey trade is essentially running the show in the West, and it means right. that there's absolutely no law and order in the eyes of the British government. So in June of 1876, more than 30 Assiniboines were killed near a whiskey post in an incident known as the Cypress Hills Massacre, which was a really pivotal event in the decision to create the Northwest Mounted Police. So for a decade and a half, the Northwest Mounted Police concentrated on building close relations with the First Nations, ones that were very complex and not always beneficial for Indigenous peoples. The establishment of police posts like Fort MacDonald ended Canada's brief Wild West period, which had caused great harm to Indigenous communities. As Crowfoot said at the signing of the Blackfoot Treaty No. 7 in 1877, if the police had not come to this country, where would we all be now? Bad men and whiskey were killing us so fast that very few of us would have been alive today. The mounted police have protected us as the feathers of the bird protect it from the frosts of winter. I wish them all good, and I trust that all our hearts will increase in goodness from this time forward. So they have really complicated relationships with the Northwest right. Mounted Police. In some cases, they're you know, benefiting Indigenous groups by protecting them. In other cases, ultimately, the settlement of white people is the the goal of the Northwest Mounted Police. So sometimes indigenous groups are disadvantaged and pushed away from white settlements. So it's this really complicated relationship in the West. And this is the organization that Steele joins as a young man. So Steele was given the rank of staff constable and he made his way westward with the first contingent in October. So Steele was largely tasked with breaking horses. You've got to be a big guy to like deal with unbroken horses yeah. all day, every day. And he's also the riding instructor, which apparently okay. he was an extremely strict riding instructor. On the 8th of July, 1874, 300 officers and men of the Northwest Mounted Police set out from Dufferin, Manitoba on a grueling two-month 1,300-kilometer march across the untracked prairies. The police quickly ran into shortages of feed for their horses and cattle, so they are not prepared for this 1,300-kilometer march across the prairies. The situation became so serious that a party from A Division, including Steele, had to be detached with the weakest animals and sent north along the Carlton Trail to the Hudson's Bay Company Fort Edmonton. Getting the ailing livestock to Fort Edmonton before winter was a grueling job, but one which Steele excelled at. His commanding officer, Inspector William Dummer Jarvis, which... <laughs> Sorry, that's just Dumber? a funny name. Dumber. <laughs> yeah. Unless really? I misspelled it, but I t Yeah. <laughs> but it's not spelled that way. It's spelled with two M's. Um. Dumber. Okay. Like Doomer. Let's... Doomer. Maybe it's Doomer. Yeah. <laughs> that makes more sense. <laughs> but I like Dumber. <laughs> yeah. Well, he noted uh, in his report that Steele had done the manual labor of at least two men on the journey. Steele spent the rest of the winter at Fort Edmonton with the rest of A Division. So already things are not going great. Not going <laughs> it's so going well, well for, for Steele. Well, yeah. Yeah, the, the general organization is not great, but Steele is 
being given lots of opportunities to demonstrate how great of a guy he is. In 1876, Steele was placed in charge of moving the headquarters of the Northwest Mounted Police to Fort McLeod in Alberta and made arrangements for the large police contingent at the Treaty No. 6 negotiations with the Cree at Forts Carlton and Pitt. At Fort McLeod, Steele continued his administrative duties, trained horses, and acted as clerk for the busy criminal sessions conducted by the officers in their capacity as justices of the peace. So, in a lot of ways, the Northwest Mounted Police at this time are basically every law and order function. So, from police all the way up to judges, they are doing everything. <laughs> so, Steele has a lot of jobs. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like that comes at a time where the like during John A. McDonald's reign, <laughs> if you want to call it that, <laughs> I, I during his time as prime minister, we were still I mean, we still are connected to Great Britain here in Canada, but we were so much more connected. And so it's interesting. I feel like this is Canada's first real authority that's all their own. Yeah, there's not a lot of pre-established systems in place in the West. So it's really not that it's impromptu in a negative way, but they're really improvising on how you create law and order in the West. And it's kind of like the first test of the Canadian government. Like, are you going to be strong enough to rein in this Western territory? So in October 1877, Steele was one of the party of Commissioner J.F. McLeod that was sent to Fort Walsh to conduct negotiations between Sitting Bull who is a Hung Papa Lakota leader who led his people during years of resistance to the United States government policies and General Alfred Howe Terry of the United States Army. So that's a heritage minute not, that eventually we're going to yeah, do. Yeah, I was going to say Sitting there Bull. is a heritage minute about Sitting Bull. So. Yeah. And so the Northwest Mounted Police are sort of like the negotiators between these two parties. So it's the United States Army and Sitting Bull, and they are trying to negotiate, and the Northwest Mounted Police are the kind of middlemen of those negotiations. After the talks failed to persuade Sitting Bull to return to American territory, a failure Steele regarded as inevitable. So he thought that, like, these talks were never going to work out anyways. Um, Steele See, decided to return guy. to Fort McLeod. Yeah, he, he seems like he's pretty perceptive. And yeah. especially because, I, I mean, it makes sense. His whole life has been spent and his whole career has been spent negotiating with different First Nations groups. And so clearly he's just like, yeah, I don't think this is going to pan out, but I got to do what I got to do. I got to go where they tell me to go. The following year, headquarters was once again moved. So it's moved to Fort Walsh because of the concentration of indigenous peoples in the Cypress Hills. So they're moving their military strength to the places that they think they are going to be needed most. And in this instance, it means moving towards the groups of indigenous people in Cypress Hills. Steele remained there until 1880 when he was made an inspector and he was then assigned his first independent command at Fort Capel. So now he's like an inspector. He's got his own stuff going on. He's a big deal. He is a big deal. He is a big wheel down at the Cracker Factory. 
So up until this point, the Northwest Mounted Police was largely responsible for controlling indigenous groups, but now they were increasingly being called to protect the expansion of the transcontinental railway. So right. this meant so settling at this point, but at this point, like the RCMP aren't who you call if like you're in trouble. Like we're not at that point. That the point that the RCMP is like a place to call if you have a like if there's an issue happening or a dispute happening. Like that doesn't happen for years. Like so, what kind of the thing I'm getting here is that at the beginning the RCMP was just like to protect Canada and like Canadian issues yeah. and like things the government deemed as like important. Yeah, so the Northwest Mounted Police are increasingly tasked with protecting the Transcontinental Railway, and this meant settling labor disputes, it meant keeping gamblers and whiskey sellers within limits, and it meant that settlements along the path of the CPR needed to be kept in line, and all of this was entrusted to Steele. He moved with the construction no pressure. and yeah, I know, yeah, he's definitely like being tasked with more serious jobs and part so in terms of his like location he moves with wherever the construction camps are so he's moving all along the railway and in april 1884 he was assigned to a 40 kilometer strip of rail in british columbia so he's moving ever ever farther west (laughs) um In spring of 1885, there was a serious labor dispute which broke out over non-payment of wages uh, and subcontractors. Shocking that laborers would want to get paid, Um, but Sam was bedridden with fever at the time, so he, like, felt that he couldn't be as involved as he wanted to. However, according to accounts, he rose from his bed and he read the riot act to the strikers. So the riot act is, you know, yeah. like the, the law that says, you know, what is legal and not legal for strikers to do. So of course the story of him, like dispersing the crowd through a sheer force of personality is probably like a little exaggerated, but it does cement this idea that Steele exudes like Victorian masculinity. Like he's everything a man is supposed to be during this time. Um, And so, of course, we are going to, like, make a whole minute about it. (laughs) So, Steele was then moved east with a large contingent of men on April 7th, which was done following Louis Riel's return and proclamation of a provisional government in March, which started the Northwest Resistance or the Northwest Rebellion. So, two names. So this is a violent five-month insurgency against the Canadian government, fought mainly by Métis and their First Nations allies in what is now Saskatchewan and Alberta. It was caused by rising fears and insecurities among the Métis and First Nations peoples, as well as the white settlers of the rapidly changing West. So there's a series of battles and other outbreaks of violence in 1885 that left hundreds of people dead, but the rebels were eventually defeated by federal troops. The result was the permanent enforcement of Canadian law in the West, the subjugation of Plains Indigenous peoples in Canada, and the conviction and hanging of Louis Riel. Um, Which was very tragic and very sad. One of the most traumatizing heritage moments made, I think. (laughs) 
very traumatizing Heritage Minute and a very divisive and controversial event in Canadian history. I think it really depends on who you ask if people say Louis Riel is a hero or if Louis Riel is a villain, but you know, we'll get all into in our Louis Riel episode at some point in the future, but back to Sam Steele, back to Sammy, uh, during this insurgency, um, Steele commanded a contingent of troops and they tracked down the Cree chief uh, named Big Bear who was targeted because his band had killed a number of people at Frog Lake. So apparently they like his group of scouts were the only people that were ever able to track down this guy. Like apparently he was extremely elusive and there were several groups of scouts that tried to capture him, but only okay. Steele's group was ever successful. And this only increases Steele's uh, reputation. So he really is a big winner of the Northwest resistance. Um, obviously a very tumultuous period in Canadian history, but Steele right. emerges as this like hero of the resistance and rebellion in the eyes of the Canadian government. And so yeah. he's promoted to superintendent and then returns to British Columbia to see the last spike of the Canadian Pacific Railway driven in. So he's present at the completion of the Transcontinental Railway. Over the next few years, Steele would continue to train Northwest Mounted Police recruits and fight against pockets of indigenous resistance in pursuit of colonization. So in the 1890s, Steele's career becomes extremely busy and the decade starts with his marriage. So he marries a woman oh. named Marie Harwood. I was going to ask, um, Marie... I, didn't, I didn't know if Sammy <laughs> was going to fall in love. Yep, so he finds himself a lady. Marie came to Fort McLeod in 1889 to visit her aunt, who was the wife of Steele's friend. So he's okay. kind of met through a friend of a friend. Um, Marie was wealthy, she was well-connected, she was athletic and outgoing, and her and oh. Sam apparently fell in love immediately and decided to get like married despite... Oh, yeah. And they get married despite religious differences. Um, so I'm pretty sure she's Roman Catholic and he's Protestant, but they get okay. married anyways. So during this time, Steele's career is kind of defined by just like routine administration. So as superintendent, you know, there's a lot of office work. But this routine is abruptly ended after gold was, gold was discovered in the Yukon. So when it became apparent in 1897 that a major rush would develop, the police force there was strengthened under the initial command of James Morrow Walsh. In January of 1898, Steele was ordered north to establish, and then he took command of the customs posts at the headwater of the Yukon River and the main staging area of the rush. So the gold rush is totally flipping his career on its head. Um, in when Steel arrived, in an okay way or in a super negative way. Yeah, I think. I mean, it's mostly like they trust him. Like they right. know that there have been gold rushes. They know the kind of upheaval they can cause in communities and how right. many how many people of suggestible character it attracts. So they trust right. Steel to be able to go north and enforce law and order there. So Steele arrives in February of 1898, uh, and when he arrived, there were only a few policemen in, in the Yukon. So the Yukon is still really 
uncharted ter- territory for the Northwest Mounted Police. But by okay. the time he left, a year and a half later, there almost one third of the Northwest Mounted Police would be located in the Yukon and under his command. The minister in charge of the Yukon in the federal liberal government was Clifford Sifton, and he arranged for the police there to report directly to Ottawa, bypassing headquarters, so that the, con- the contingent in the Yukon was basically a separate force. So Steele is in charge of one-third of the Northwest Mounted Police, and they don't even report to the rest of the organization. Like, they're their own why is unique that? group. I think it's because they're just so overwhelmed with the amount of right. stuff that they have to do and that is it they just can't. That, right. I was just going to say, is it just that they don't have to like report to them like for permission stuff? Like, are they still, um, would they still communicate and like, yeah, like, yeah. They, like I, they're I, not fighting with each other. They're just not working directly. Oh with yeah. Each no. Other. Yeah. It's not okay. like there's like a schism in the organization. It's more so okay. that. Like, what they need to do needs to get done really quickly, and you can't have the bureaucratic leg of reporting to Regina, and then they report to Ottawa, and then Ottawa gets back to you. Like, they just need to have a direct line with Ottawa so they can do what they need to do. Um, And this this suited Steele really, really well. So not only could he... Oh, yeah, he loves it. (laughs) Um, Not only could he run the police as he saw fit... But the isolation in the Yukon allowed him to make up laws and regulation as necessary. So he has complete control. And because they're so isolated, he can kind of just do whatever he wants. And that means like making up laws sometimes that don't get approved by anybody. (laughs) (laughs) So the most famous example of his authority occurred at Bennett Lake during the spring breakup of 1898 when Steele dictated that all prospective miners register their boat and adhere to strict rules for navigation when they were heading downriver. Later in the year, he refused to allow anyone into the territory without a minimum quantity of food and money. These actions were blatantly illegal, as Steele cheerfully admitted to, but they also obviously saved lives, so (laughs) the miners and Ottawa accepted them. So he's just okay. like making up random restrictions to make sure there are certain people who can't get into the Yukon. So essentially, like if you're a total pauper, like you have no food, you have no <laughs> money, you're not you're not going to be allowed in to the Yukon. Right. And he has absolutely no authority to do that. But because it keeps the amount of people in the Yukon to like a certain level, like there just aren't as many people around the miners are like, oh, this is probably saving lives. And Ottawa's like, yeah, all right. Steel can do whatever he wants. <laughs> He's just like the good kid that the government is just like, yeah, like, yeah, we trust him. Yeah, and when I was doing the research, I was like, so many of these things remind me of just like last week's episode, like Frontenac with, yeah, you know, he he's just like doing whatever he wants to do. But whereas Frontenac was doing it to pursue his own interests. Yeah, personal gain. Yeah. Yeah, Steele is clearly doing it for the benefit of the people under his command. Like, Steele's ultimate objective is law and order. And he'll do whatever it takes to ensure law and order, even if that means making up laws. (laughs) Steele assumed command of the Yukon Northwest Mounted Police in July 1898. 
Once he moved to Dawson, Steele concentrated on keeping order. Institutions like gambling houses and saloons were tolerated but strictly controlled, and they were entirely closed on Sundays. So Steele is just kind of known for being a fair person. For minor offenses, you wouldn't be thrown in jail. You'd be sent to uh, work by cutting firewood for the police headquarters. Um, Okay. And then more serious criminal. Yeah. Like, (laughs) I don't know if it's because they just don't have the resources to throw them in jail, but. Think about what you've done. Cut some firewood and think about what you've done. I like that. Yeah, exactly. That's very much my, uh, my stepdad's method of (laughs) of punishment. (laughs) Yeah. You will become a good person through chores. Yeah. But of course, if you're a more serious criminal, he's going to like ship you out on the first available boat. So he has, he's considered very fair, though he has a very low tolerance for serious criminals or disturbers of the peace. Now, with all of this power and control, you might think that people kind of rebuked Steele. So kind of like in the Heritage Minute, like he has all of this power to just chuck this guy out of the country and that guy reacts extremely negatively by trying to shoot him um but for the most part miners especially american miners actually really embrace steel and his paternal form of leadership so he's actually really well liked by the people well, it in seems the like he's it seems like he's the type of guy where if you do what you're supposed to do you are rewarded for that by getting to continue yeah. to do it and if you don't, mm-hmm. then, you know, that kind of benefits everybody because the people who aren't doing what they should do get punished and aren't allowed back. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds yeah, very and, fair. And, yeah, and I think the it's Canadian like The Canadian way. <laughs> Men and Women podcast, we define the Canadian way. Mm-hmm. I believe we defined the Canadian way in our first episode as no wisdom below the belt. Do you remember yeah, that? <laughs> I do. No wisdom below the belt. Be fair. I feel like that's pretty good. And I I think the main reason that they kind of embrace his very paternal form of leadership is that he's not doing it for personal benefit in any way. Like, he clearly doesn't benefit. Like, he could be taking bribes if he wanted to. I mean, there's no one there to say that he can't, but he doesn't. And so I think, yeah, people people like him. He's respected. However. He's got that respect. Yeah, he's definitely... Yeah, he's definitely well-respected by the people that he kind of oversees. However, Minister Sifton, so the guy in Ottawa who's in control of the Yukon, still winds up on his bad side, uh, mostly because he's resisting the kind of partisan system of patronage that Sifton was trying to enforce in the Yukon in 1899. And so because of this, Steele is transferred out of the Yukon. Oh, yeah. So what a big bully. I don't like that guy. (laughs) But when Steele left, virtually the entire population of Dawson came out to like cheer him as he left. And the miners presented him with a bag of gold dust. So they're like giving him this like hero's goodbye. It's really sad. I know. And it's it's really funny because, I mean, he does have this really long career. Um, I mean, he has this whole section of career we haven't even gotten into yet. But he's only in the Yukon for like a year. And wow. that's kind of what he's remembered for. 
but it's such a slim margin of his career. But it was prof- it was prominent, you know, like that was an important time yeah. for Canada and, and a time where rules need it to be enforced and put in place. And yeah. Yeah. And it's it's kind of romantic, too. I think we're like, ooh, gold. Yeah. How exciting. Oh, for sure. So Steele would have been reassigned somewhere else in the Northwest Mounted Police. However, um, before he could be reassigned, the Boer War breaks out in South Africa. So this would be the first major international conflict in which Canada would represent itself. So Canada is going to fight in this international conflict, not as the British Army, but as the Canadian Army. And Steele, of course... Because, yeah, Canada is its own dominion. It's going to represent itself. It's this, it's an independent country and it don't need no Britain. Steele, of course, immediately volunteers. So this is like, you know, of course. He's like this big adventure guy. Of course he's going to volunteer. And he was bounced around between a few commands until January of 1900 um, when he was offered command of a British army unit to be recruited in Canada and sponsored by Lord Strathcona. So okay. Lord Strathcona is like a big celebrity name during this time. And so okay. to be in command of his army unit would have been a really big deal. <laughs> All right. Good for um, Sammy. So, yeah. And of course, because he's a Northwest Mounted policeman, he is intending to create a cavalry unit. I love that. Um, get those horses and he largely, in there. Yeah, we're going to get some horses down there. And he largely recruits from within the Northwest Mounted Police, which was the closest thing Canada had to a standing army at the time. So on the journey across the Atlantic, he organized a schedule for every single day of the journey, thus preventing the deterioration of morale that plagued a lot of the other Canadian units. So he knows okay. that he has to keep them active and engaged. So he has a daily schedule. Um, once in South Africa, Steele used all of his skills, together with the substantial influence of Strathcona's name, to ensure that his unit was not dispersed or given routine assignments. So the unit's going to stay together, and they're going to do exciting stuff. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, this is what I'm going to use my power and influence for. I want to do cool things. Steele's unit was ready to enter the field by May 1900. However, by then, the conventional phase of warfare had already broken down in South Africa, and the fighting had become a guerrilla style of warfare. The regiment, Mm, therefore, spent the... Yeah, it's... I mean, I I don't personally know a whole lot about the Boer War, but I, I know it's not a war that Britain leaves... Like, in retrospect, people are like, ooh, Britain is really the bad guy in this situation. So Canada's not really on the winning side of history in this particular uh, conflict. But the regiment spent the next seven months scouting for columns of the elusive Boer commandos. So they're in the woods tracking down Boer commandos, kind of like what um, Steele's scouts did during the Northwest Resistance. While the pursuit was often too timid for Steele's liking, so he wants them to pursue far more aggressively, but they're given orders to, like, calm down. Um, His unit (laughs) did perform well. One of his sergeants, named Arthur Richardson, was the first Canadian to win the Victoria Cross, which is pretty cool. The Strathconas returned to Canada for a leave in January 1901, and Steele's leadership was noted. 
When Steele returned to South Africa in June, so six months later, he was in command of a division in the South African Constabulary. Steele's time in South Africa often gets kind of confronted with these two allegations. So two allegations are made against Steele during this time. The first came from Lieutenant Adamson, who accused Steele of drinking excessively and not caring for the safety of his soldiers. So there's this lieutenant spreading rumors that he's like just drunk all the time and he really doesn't care about his soldiers. That's why he wants to like aggressively pursue commandos in the woods, like all of this stuff. Um, But it's not true, right? So this one is like, People don't Say really it think ain't so. It, <laughs> it's not true to the extent that Adamson is claiming. So Steele was okay. known to drink. Um, okay. However, he had never reacted like this before. And the extreme way that Adamson reports it is probably more related to the fact that he grew up in like the city of Ottawa and was a student of Cambridge. Like he just wasn't familiar with the type of like rugged attitude that Steele presented in his leadership. So it's probably more that than anything. Um, And as for not caring for his soldiers, there's no other accusations made by any of his other soldiers about this. And it it doesn't resemble the rest of his career in any way. Like he's always really, really cared about the men under his control. So it doesn't seem like that one's true. However, uh, the other allegation is a bit more serious and likely true. So in August of 1900, a party of Strathcona's witnessed an incident typical of this period of war in which a detachment of South African light horsemen approached a Boer farm displaying a flag of truce. So they're like flying a white flag, um, but then fired upon the men and killed some of them. So they're pretending oh. to be surrendering, but they're not. Um, the Strathconas allegedly responded by capturing those responsible, helping the light horse to hold a court-martial, quote-unquote, and hang six of the boars on the spot. Whoa. So, yeah. Um, Crime and punishment, baby. Yeah. They hold, like, a mock trial and then just hang people. Um, reports of this incident in the press were denied by Steele and his superiors, but recent histories have carefully studied the episode and it kind of leaves little doubt that the hangings did occur and then were covered up by Steele and others. It also kind of resembles his mode of justice in the Yukon where he would kind of just do whatever he saw necessary to achieve the aims of law and order. Um, though this is a particularly violent demonstration of that. Steele spent five years in South Africa. The last year of the war was spent pacifying the countryside by pursuing the remaining Boer commandos. Even before hostilities formally ended in May of 1902, Steele had begun the process of converting his unit to civilian duty. He knew from his Canadian experience that no police force could function effectively without public cooperation. So now he's taking his military unit and kind of turning them into like Northwest Mounted Police, like turning them into a more civilian police force. Okay, um, kind of like peacekeepers. Uh, uh, 
kind of, kind of. Peacekeeper kind is of. probably a generous term. Um, okay. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like it's a post-war, like kind of what yeah. a lot of militaries do in a post-war setting. Yeah. Um, to steal, this meant winning. So he knows that he needs public cooperation. So he's going to try and win the confidence of the Boer farmers by supplying practical services. In addition to providing security, he ensures that the soldiers are acting as game wardens, veterinarians, census takers, and license issuers. So they're becoming bureaucrats in a lot of ways. As soon as the war ended, he stepped up the transition by encouraging his men to learn Afrikaans, uh, pushing the authorities to allow the Boers to have their rifles back, and persuading the government to appoint senior officers as magistrates. He also touted a policy of conciliating the Afrikaner population. So the Afrikaner population is like the white African population in South Africa. Um, right which meant abandoning the black majority to their mercies. So they're basically going to let the white population do whatever they want, uh, which isn't yeah. great. Um, but this didn't really bother Steele because he did see black people as a subject race. Ooh. Which. Woof. Yeah. History. It, you're going to be hard pressed to find not racist white people during this period of time. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be hard pressed to find not racist white people for most of history. Yeah, very true. Um, and Steele definitely does have like this. He, he definitely believes in like a social hierarchy of races. Um, okay. And he sees white people as being the best. But, you know, by 1907, Steele had returned to his family in Canada. So he's leaving behind his South African adventure. Um, mm -hmm. he had officially retired from the Northwest Mounted Police in 1903, so he took up several commanding officer positions in Canadian military districts. Okay. He's keeping busy. Yeah, so he's, he's still working, but he's not in the Northwest Mounted Police anymore. Steele was 63 when the First World War broke out in the summer of 1914, but still he hoped that he would be put in command of the 1st Canadian Division, but he was rejected you... due to age. He's an old man! I know, yeah. but he's like, I still got it! Like, I can still do it! That put day. me in, coach! Like, especially in that day and age. Like, I mean... Yeah. I mean, now that's still, like, past retirement age, like, you know, like, you're kind of... It's, like, that middle life kind of point. But, I mean, even back then, like, I mean, life expectancy <laughs> was so much lower. Like, that's wild. Yeah. And, I mean, like, they think he's too old. Like, they're like, right. oh, no, no, no. You're, like, way too old to be in charge of the 1st Canadian Division. Um, right. And within a few months, it became very apparent that the war was going to last for some time and would mm. require an increased military effort. So, at this point, they're like oh, man, we do need a lot of people. Um, so in December of 1914, Steele was promoted to major general and put in charge of training in Western Canada. So he's just training wow. units for the battlefront. So when the formation of the 2nd Canadian Division was announced in early 1915, Steele was offered the command and he accepted it. However, at the British War Office, Lord Kitchener tried to veto this appointment because he believed Steele was too old for active combat command. Mm. 
So still people are like, no, you can't put this 63-year-old guy in charge of troops. Like, he just can't be in the battlefield anymore. Which he won't cope. I, He'll die. Which I think makes He's sense. He's going to die. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to die. <laughs> what if he has a heart attack? <laughs> like, we can't handle this. But Samuel Hughes, the Minister of Militia and Defense, insisted Steele be given the position due to political pressure. So... Steele is like this hero. He's this Canadian icon. And so yeah. people are like, you, you can't not give him the command. Like, he's got such a, like, a strong name and, and reputation that they're insisting that he be put in command of troops, despite the fact that he's 63 years old. So eventually a compromise was reached between Kitchener and Hughes, and under this compromise, Steele would head the 2nd Canadian Division until it was sent to France. So he's not going to command it once it's in active combat, but up until that point, he will oversee their, their responsibilities. Oh, okay. Good for him. So after, yeah, so he assumes command in May of 1915, um, and after this, he handled its organization in Canada and training in England until he was eventually replaced by Major General Richard Ernest William Turner in August. <laughs> so what year is that? Um, so that's 1915. So we're still in like the first year of the war. So one of the legacies of Steele's service in South Africa was that his commission was in the British Army as well as the Canadian Army. So because he was part of the Strathcona's, he was part of the British Expeditionary Force. So he has offices in both the British and the Canadian Army. Kitchener was thus able to offer him an administrative post as a commanding officer in the southeastern oh, cool. district of England, which included the principal Canadian training camp at Shorncliffe. So he's working lots of different positions um, with two different armies. Um, Steele, who took up the command on the 5th of August, might have served out the war in useful semi-obscurity had it not been for the interference of Hughes. So in this kind of administrative job, he probably would have done really well. But Hughes had decided that in addition to his British appointment, Steele should have command of all Canadian troops in England, effective the 3rd of August. This step inevitably brought about conflict with Brigadier General John Wallace Carson, the special representative of the minister militia, and the Brigadier General James Charles McDougall, general officer commanding Canadian troops in the United Kingdom, both of whom thought they were in overall command. So there's a lot of administrative muddle during this time, and it's really unclear as to who is in charge. And of course, that can only cause chaos and problems during the Canadian war effort. So this administrative muddle was a huge setback for the Canadian war effort, and it would remain unresolved until Hughes fell from power in November of 1916. So for over a year, there's like three guys thinking they're in charge of the troops in England. And so it's not great. Um, not, the newly not appointed great times. Yeah, not a great time. Definitely could have managed it better. Um, and <laughs> it's not that Steele is like ultimately responsible for that, but he does contribute to it in the sense that, you know, it's like you could have stepped down. You could have given somebody authority but 
you didn't. And so you're not, not entirely blameless, but not entirely innocent, you know? Or I yeah. guess I should say you're not entirely to blame, but you're not entirely uh, yeah. innocent as well. Yeah, no, yeah. no, that makes sense. So the newly appointed minister quickly moved to sort out the mess. And by doing that, they mean they're going to get one guy in command. And so they offer to move Steele back to Western Canada as a recruiter, like he had done at the beginning of the war, but he refuses. Um, so therefore, he was Why? relieved of his Canadian command. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's just like ambition. Yeah. yeah, like I think he's really good at that stuff. But yeah, I think maybe it's just like, it must just be ambition. Like he feels like he deserves a better post than that. Right. But because he refuses this, he's relieved of his Canadian command on the 1st of December, 1916. Yeah, so he still has his British command despite him leaving the Canadian command. And he retained right. this con control until the 1st of March. And then he eventually retired on the 15th of July um, at oh. the end of the war. So he, so he stays in those positions. And so the way he's kind of remembered in history is that in the Yukon and in the West, Steele's natural decisiveness and independence, where he didn't have to defer to the government to get approval, and where the scale of his responsibilities was such that he could directly interact with everything involved. Like, he, he could personally control everything that was happening because the administration was so small. He really thrives in those situations, and it made him this really powerful leader in the frontier, and he really performs well in that environment. But in England, now at like this kind of metropolitan center, far from the frontier, those attributes and that experience did not translate very well. And so, again, while Steele isn't really ultimately responsible for the chaos that takes place during his administration in England, his experience also doesn't help him make good decisions. Um, and so he's kind of like this like relic of another era. So Sam Steele died just after his 70th birthday in England and was one of the many victims of the Spanish influenza of 1918. He was buried in Winnipeg, however, on the 3rd of July. So he gets like his, he, he eventually is buried in Canada. So the First World War brought so much change to Canada that Steele kind of seems like a man from a whole nother era, but his accomplishments in the pre-World War sense really set in motion kind of the shape of Canada and the Western expansion that we know today. So he's an interesting figure in Canadian history. He's an interesting fellow. Like, I, I, I liked... I liked this episode a lot because listening to you talk about him, like, it was really informative. Like, he did a lot of cool stuff. He had, it was a good yeah. story. A lot of the times there's not almost enough to have a good story, an idea of the person's background. But this I, like, felt like we got to, like, witness him, like, grow and learn, like, in his career doing his passion. So I liked that. Good. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it. I mean, it's not a crazy funny topic um but no. he's he is kind of an interesting figure who lives through such a transformative period like you could definitely yeah. see like the world he was born into in the 1840s is not the world that he leaves behind 
just following the first world war like he lives through such a transformative period in history and you can see that even by like by the time he's reaching the end of his career the experiences he had were no longer attributable to his job like you can imagine that you know Mm. an army general you know maybe 200 years before this a general in command of the army, the army that he would control at the beginning of his career and the army that he would control at the end of his career would be very similar. But yeah. going from Northwest Mounted Police to the First World War, like that is such a change. Even just between the Boer War and the First World War, like his experiences were no longer attributable. And because of that, he kind of gets forgotten in terms of as like a nation builder or as a yeah. as an important figure in Canada's military history but right i mean he, he committed his whole life to to military service and stuff so and, and yeah like i mean like i said at the top of the episode i kind of set out probably with, which isn't a good thing but i was like oh i'm not going <laughs> to like this guy like i know this dude is not going to be someone that i find heroic by today's standards but i do kind of like him like i mean obviously he had a lot of issues <laughs> in terms of, like, race, opinions on race and stuff. But, like, I think the attributes of just being, like, I'm going to be fair, and he doesn't abuse his power when he's kind of left to his own devices, like, those things are admirable. So he, he's an interesting dude. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Minute Women Podcast. We just want to remind everyone that we really would appreciate it if you could go follow, like, and subscribe to our podcast uh, wherever you choose to listen. We are on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. Please go do that. And also don't forget to rate uh, our podcast as well. Yeah, if you find some time during your quarantine and isolation to give us a nice five-star review and write a little comment that would be awesome um you can also follow us on instagram at minute women podcast same handle for the facebook page we're trying to put up some extra content especially on instagram so tune in for some live videos and things like that and you can follow us on twitter at the minute women yeah all right we look forward to uh staying connected with you guys through these weird and confusing uh COVID-19 <laughs> times but uh we hope that this podcast can bring you a little bit of joy on these isolated days yeah because I mean it brings us joy so it does <laughs> we're gonna keep so doing joy. it regardless really we just do it for ourselves <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks so right. much guys bye bye, bye.